You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another live program here on Voice of Islam radio station. Uh, today you are joined by myself, Safir Zartasht and Osama Kareem. Assalamu alaikum, Osama. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Um, so this is now your second time, is it, presenting? Yes. How are you feeling? Time. How are you finding I'm good. it? Yeah. yeah. Um, Alhamdulillah. That's great. It's going good. That's great. Um, so obviously for those of you who are listening, it's uh, Usama Kareem is one of our new presenters. And uh, we have two very interesting topics uh, that we're going to talk about uh, today. First of all, we're going to talk about uh, Muslim values. Are Muslim values at odds with nationhood? Or to put it in simpler form, when people talk about British values, when people talk about, you know, our values uh, here in the UK, do you think that Islam or Muslims, uh, you know, uh, have, or, or you as a, as a British person maybe, um uh, as as a non-muslim uh white person perhaps if i may say um you know think that we as as muslims have similar values when it comes to living our life uh, etc now we know that you know the uk is very multi um, cultural uh, we have people from different religions from different backgrounds and people live you know, fairly, you know, happy and, and comfortable. But we do have uh, issues of racism. We do have issues of Islamophobia. There's no running away from that. We know that that, that is a fact. There's a lot of scaremongering, um, you know, when it comes to Muslims and Islam. Um, and, and by the grace of Allah, you know, thank God, I mean, a lot of people, majority of people know how to distinguish between, you know, lies and, 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 and truth. But then sometimes... Those lies are pushed upon us uh, with extreme force that uh, maybe, for example, through media, which makes people question whether Islam or whether Muslims are a threat to uh, our society or our way of living uh, as such. So that's, that's something that we're going to talk about today. Um, and we are going to speak to a few guests as well later on, but... If we look at a very well-known uh, journalist, William uh, Shawcross, um, in, back in 2012, he said, Europe and Islam is one of the greatest, most terrifying problems of our future. All right. So in 2006, he said, uh, or he warned of a vast, big fifth column of Muslims in Europe who wish to destroy us. Um, now, I mean, why are we talking about this now if he said that in 2012? 12 and if this was something he said then before that in 2006 but we're talking about this because he oversaw the independent review of the UK's prevent strategy which um, 
published its finding on 8th of February. Now, PREVENT, for those of you who might not be aware, is the British government's counter-terrorism program adopted in schools and public spaces to root out uh, radicalization. His main finding was that more Islamist uh, referrals needed to be made to avoid further terrorist attacks, implying a big connection between Muslims and threats to British identity and values. So, the question we are asking is, are the almost 4 million Muslims in the UK today who bring in about um, you know, £31 billion worth of economy to the UK, really plotting to bring down the state? Uh, should, should our values be seen as distinct from British values? Are Muslims really at odds with the British way of life? So, Osama, this is something that you know we see uh, over the last few years, and even before then, before that, you know, we're talking about uh, a decade now. Um, it is quite, you know, alarming and perhaps a bit strange that a person who is in a position where they are, um, you know, supposed to uh, bring about uh, peace in the society. Uh, or um, safeguard the society to label or to kind of say that you know Islam is a threat to our society. Mm. How do how do we how do you see that in, in terms of uh, today's day and age with what, what people are thinking, what the youth are thinking, for example? Yeah, but um, if we look at the Holy Quran and mm. there is a verse of um, a Holy Quran, he says that and help one another in righteousness and piety, but help not one another in sin and transgression. And fear Allah, surely Allah is severe in punishment. So value system in this verse is based on cooperation and doing good together, mm. not in committing sins like terror attacks. Before looking in more detail at what is righteous conduct, we need to clarify what Islam actually says about nationhood. Right. So we're going to look at that now, what Islam says about nationhood. Uh, but obviously, before I go into that, uh, also, this is obviously an interactive program, so we'd love to hear your views on that. You can give us a call at any time. Uh, 0208-687-7878 is the number. You can also tweet at uh, Voice of Islam UK if you wish to send in your uh, comments. Um, is our Muslim values at odds with nationhood? That's you know, the discussion that we're having today. Um, so nationhood in Islam, if we look at the definition, first of all, nationhood uh, refers to the status of belonging to a nation or to a state or having some sort of, you know, national identity. So how do you get that sense of belonging or should I say, how do you get that national identity? How do you acquire it? There are perhaps two ways, either ethnic, so ethnic would mean from your racial heritage, uh, if you're a German, Indian, Pakistani, you know, African, or civic. Now, civic model is more open because anyone can become a part of the state as long as they abide by the laws of, you know, the state. Or what you need is to just be a law-abiding citizen. Now... These are the two, 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 two ways that we talked about. So ethnic or civic. 
The Islamic model of nationhood follows the civic model established by the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, within the Treaty of Medina. Uh, we're talking about 622 AD. Now, the aim was to ensure peaceful coexistence with Muslims and the Jewish tribes in Medina. And uh, the Jews allowed were allowed to regulate affairs according to their own laws in their areas. And Muslims were allowed to practice their own laws in their own areas. So the Holy Prophet was very flexible and he was very uh, open to letting people live their lives as they wanted to, as per their scriptures, as per their beliefs, as long as there was peace, you know, in, yeah. in, in the area. And Medina, obviously, people think of it as just a whole Muslim community, but there were Jews living there, there mm. were people of no religion living there, there were perhaps, you know, some Christians um, and, and uh, people from other, uh, you know, uh, thinking and, and uh, ideologies living there. So... It wasn't, it wasn't just Muslims. So yeah. he allowed that system where um, they were free to go about and, and, and live and, and in fact have their own laws according to their own religious beliefs within their circles, within their villages, within their you know areas. So as long as all the communities were together in terms of peace with each other and giving that freedom to each other, Everybody was living peacefully. So that is the practical example that we see from, you know, the time of the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, but as you mentioned, the verse of the Quran, chapter 5, verse 3, saying that you should help one another with righteousness and piety and do not help each other in sin and transgression. Um, then that is, of course, one of the central uh, teachings of Islam in terms of how you should lead your life, how you should live. But then we find so many other verses in the Holy Quran, don't we, uh, Usama, where it is mentioned that you should uh, do justice uh, and uh, not transgress upon other people, uh, let them live their lives as well, live in peace, uh, because all of God's creation is um, sacred in a sense that they they should not be harmed. Yep. So have we? Shall we have uh, a little bit of look at the, uh, um, you know, the 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 history uh, of uh, of Islam, uh, perhaps even after the Prophet uh, passed away, and many many years after. Yep. Um, so if we look at the Ottoman Empire, regarded as more tolerant of Jewish and Christian communities than other um, empires at that time. For example, in the Mughal Empire in fifth, uh, between 1542 and 1605, who ruled over a majority Hindu India, ensured um, religious tolerance, allowed Hindus positions of power in government, and even allowed them to use their own laws to regulate themselves. But um, if we look in, in Islam, mm. there is a concept of Ummah, mm -hmm. which refers to the Muslim community as a whole, regardless of their nationality and ethnicity or other social factors. The Quran states that believers are brothers and sisters in faith and should work together to promote righteousness and justice. Mm. However, while the concept of Ummah emphasizes the unity of um, the Muslim community, it does not negate the importance of national or 
cultural ident identity. And Safir, um, there is a famous story that highlights the importance of um, national identity in Islam. Mm. Um, that story is of um, the famous companion um, Salman the Persian. Yep. Um, Salman the Persian was one of the companions of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings be upon him. Yep. Salman was actually born into a Zoroastrian family in Persia. Mm. and uh, But he eventually converted to Islam and became one of the closest companions of the Holy Prophet. Despite um, his newfound faith, Salman remained um, proud of his Persian heritage and mm. culture. Mm. And he often um, spoke about um, the beauty of Persia and its uh, people. Yeah. When the Holy Prophet um, heard Salman expressing his love for his homeland, he, the Holy Prophet then said that, um, love your homeland for it is a part of your faith. Yeah. This statement, this statement indicates that it is not only acceptable but also praiseworthy for Muslims to feel a sense of attachment and loyalty to their country mm. and its people. Yeah. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this this saying is very powerful, isn't it? Uh, yeah. From the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. That hubul watni min alimani that. Um, love for your nation is part of your faith so uh, loving your nation that means loving your country loving uh, you know it's it's uh, history um, it's people um, having that loyalty is uh, extremely important yes of course you're entitled to raise your voice or your opinion about things that are wrong um, there's nothing stopping you from that but your loyalty should be with your nation i mean if we look at it from a from a point of view that there are many people who live in the uk for example or coming to great britain they have had the chance maybe even from countries where their circumstances were not so good so they came to to this these countries where they were offered you know uh, refuge they were then given opportunity to to edu for education for work um, and to have a more comfortable and uh, peaceful um, life, then that in itself is, you know, Islam requires us to be grateful as well, to be um, to, to be thankful to, to those things as well. Um, and, you know, when obviously this whole Daesh thing was happening and uh, we unfortunately saw some radicalized youth uh, traveling to Syria and Iraq to, to fight or, or take part in uh, terrorism, that it was extremely disappointing because as a Muslim, you first of all, you're not allowed to, to do uh, take part in, uh, you're not allowed to take part in any terrorist activities. But on the other side, you know, you're, you're leaving a country that gave you refuge, you're leaving a country that gave you the opportunity, um, you know, for, for, for good uh, education and work and you are going to do something which is against Islamic teaching. So Islam is, is against that. And unfortunately, when people see these actions happening, they associate that, that with Islam or they think that this is what Muslims do. Whereas if they, you know, were to open the scriptures and, and look at Islam, what the teachings are, then then it is far away from what, uh, you know, so so-called uh, Muslims um, are doing. 
And there is only a minority of those Muslims. You know, majority of Muslims worldwide are, are living, minding their own business, you know, living a uh, peaceful life side by side by other people. So it is very important to remember that uh, when we talk about, you know, values. And otherwise it becomes us a against them. And that creates a hateful environment in the society. We have seen that uh, with, with racism and Islamophobia. Now, um, loyalty um, to the state, as I mentioned, was a key feature of Islam, a key feature of the Charter of Medina, in fact. The only time Jews and Muslims had to unite was if Medina was threatened externally. So to defend themselves collectively, that was part of the agreement. It was forbidden to enter into any separate treaty with other tribes outside Medina. So here are the roots of nationhood. No question of Muslim, like fifth column, trying to destroy Medina. In fact, Muslims who had been born and raised in Mecca had to be prepared to fight with the Jews of Medina against Meccan uh, relatives and once time, you know, neighbors who they lived with. But if they attacked Medina, they, they were all together fighting and, and de defending their you know, cities, uh, villages against uh, the Meccans. So loyalty to Medina was more important than that of, you know, kinship and relationships. Now, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness, Hazem is Aghulam Ahmed, uh, may peace be upon him, expected a similar loyalty of his followers towards the British in India. Um, he said, show good conduct towards everyone. It is an obligation upon every Muslim to obey and be loyal to the authorities. They protected us and have given us complete religious freedom. I deem it a betrayal if someone does not show sincere-hearted obedience and loyalty to the government. Malfuzat, uh, uh, Volume 2, page 174. 02086877878 is the number to call. You can also tweet at uh, Voice of Islam UK if you wish to send in your comments or if you want to touch base with us uh, on the phone. We'll, our lines are open. We'll love to hear from you. What your take is um, on this topic that we are discussing. Is Islamic values, uh, you know, at odds with nationhood or against the values of uh, Western countries? This is uh, something that we have discussed uh, many times as well. And uh, we're taking up that again because it's such a relevant issue. Um, there's always talks around that. And we're going to look at that in more detail. But let's first go to our first guest. We have uh, Imam uh, Ahmed Salman with us, who is a missionary of the MDA Muslim community, joining us from uh, Puerto Rico. Um, good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you, Imam Ahmed Salman. How are you doing? Um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I am now in Arizona. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was, I used, yes, I used to be in Puerto Rico, but now I have moved to... Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, that's that's great, and uh, you know, uh, uh, may this be a blessed transfer for you. Um, how's uh, how's the weather? Dif uh, is it a big difference uh, weather-wise, Arizona and uh, Puerto Rico? I mean, I guess oh, yes. it must be warmer down um, there, right? It is, it is, but right now it's uh, almost like fifty Fahrenheit. Uh, that's about twelve degrees, I would say. Hmm. Definitely um, colder. Not too cold. Uh, yeah, definitely colder. Um, the mornings are cold and the nights are cold, but mm. during the day it gets 
uh, pretty hot. <laughs> and, and the summer are particularly hot as well. Uh, uh, definitely. Okay. Uh, they're they're <laughs> off the charts. You know, you can you can fry an egg on the cars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's your breakfast sorted then. Uh, oh yes. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about the Treaty of Medina. Obviously, we did speak a little bit about it. Um, you know, we gave our listeners a little bit of uh, background to it. But uh, would you be able to just uh, take us a little bit in detail uh, about the Treaty of Medina, why it was so important, and how we can learn from that Treaty of Medina that was established by the Prophet, uh, you know, uh, 1,400 years ago? Yes, uh the treaty was um it holds a very important role in the history of islam because uh, uh it was a very difficult time for muslims uh when the muslims migrated from mecca to medina and it was around the same time when the muhajireen and the ansar the migrants and the locals uh, who were living in medina were made uh, brothers, basically, among the companions, you know, just to kind of give them support. But at the same time, there was a threat uh, to Muslims in the sense that um, the Meccans could attack Medina or attack Muslims in particular at any given point, at any given moment. And so that, and looking at the severity of the situation and uh, the wisdom, uh, the Holy Prophet Sallam, uh, may peace and blessing of God be upon him, when he arrived in Medina, he not only made the mawakha, the brotherhood among the companions, but also he established interfaith relations with other groups. You know, there were um, the idol worshippers, uh, the tribes of Aas and Khizraj. Then you have the Banu Nazir, uh, the Kanka, and um, other groups of Jews that were also residing within Medina. So they needed to come up with a charter so that everybody can live and coexist peacefully within Medina. And so for this reason, Prophet Muhammad uh, brought all the, uh, invited all the chiefs uh, of Medina together, and then these, uh, the charter of Medina, uh, with all these rules and regulations was uh, placed. And especially in case of this charter, um, uh, there was a, uh, an agreement made among uh, the Muslims and the Jews as well. Um, and, and also with the, the idol worshippers, the, uh, the Sabians. And uh, one of the um, articles of, I'm just paraphrasing here, um, one of the requirements of that charter was that if another nation waged war against the Jews or the Muslims, one would stand up in defense of the other. Similarly, um, it is stated that if Medina was attacked, everyone would defend it co collectively. And then it further goes on to state that the Jews would not provide any aid or protection to Quraysh of Mecca or to their allies. Every community would bear their own expenses. This treaty would not protect no tyrants, criminals, or wrongdoers from punishment or retribution. Um, and then uh, all disputes and conflicts would be presented before the messenger of uh, God uh, for his judgment, and all verdicts would be in accordance with the divine command. For example, in this case, the Sharia. And so there were other uh, main uh, guidelines for this charter uh, that were uh, signed upon by all these uh, faith groups, you know. Uh, to to live a secular or have a secular 
uh, environment within um, Medina, protecting each other and laying down uh, their uh, responsibilities as the citizens of Medina. So it was not only for the benefit of the Muslims, but it was also for the benefit of everybody else who was residing there at that time in Medina. Yep. And um, how long did the treaty last and how was it, it broken? It lasted, um, it lasted um, uh, a few years, I believe, uh, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, once Prophet Muhammad came, the treaty was formed and then they went to battle, uh, of the Battle of Badr. And the Jews, um, you know, uh, they thought, uh, according to the history accounts, that they thought that Muslims might not survive this and they might die off within that battle. But rather than dying, you know, God helped, with the help of God, they survived and they, they flourished after the Battle of uh, Badr. And so that brought some sort of enmity, animosity, or jealousy among the Jewish tribes, especially among the tribe of uh, Kanka that uh, lived uh, a little bit further uh, and they lived within their uh, four, uh, in their castles, uh, according to those times. And uh, due to that animosity and jealousy, they started conspiring against Muslims and uh, against the, uh, the Holy Prophet. And there are uh, numerous uh, statements and records where uh, Jews in particular, they would sit among the meetings of uh, the Othan Khizraj, the, the idol worshippers, and then they would say certain things to boil their blood, you know, uh, the, 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 the freedom they had or the things they enjoyed or they could do whatever they wanted. But after the coming of Islam, they were restricted. They were, follow, you know, forced to follow the laws and live in a civilized uh, uh, nation. Mm-hmm. So once what happened was that uh, the Jews... Um, uh, there was one shopkeeper, uh, there was one Muslim uh, lady who actually visited that sh- Jewish shopkeeper for uh, her groceries and stuff, and she went and sat there, and uh, the shopkeeper, who was Jewish, uh, he kind of conspired against the lady and started taunting her uh, and you know, started bothering her in uh, an unkindly manner. And another thing which the shopkeeper did was he hooked up her, uh, the part of her uh, pants, or you can say her robe, uh, to a hook or something, so that when she got up, uh, it ripped through her uh, clothes and it made her uh, naked in front of the whole crowd that was sitting there. And the moment this happened, you know, every all the Jews started laughing, and it became a huge commotion. And the the Muslim lady also kind of cried out loud for help. And at that time, a Muslim came to help her, and he kind of attacked the shopkeeper, and he killed the shopkeeper. And later on, that Muslim uh, companion was also killed. And basically, once the news got to the Holy Prophet. Uh, may peace and blessing of God be upon him. He went to the Jews and he said that this has now happened. And so according to the law of Moses, you know, um, that if any Jew would break these uh, covenants with other nations, they would be punished by death. So at that time, the Holy Prophet being 
kind and merciful, he told the Jews of the Genka that, you know, you, uh, uh, instead of uh, begging forgiveness, they said, we will go on to war with you. And so the Muslims went and uh, attacked uh, Banu Kanka. They confined themselves within their uh, castles, and I, I believe it was it lasted for about 15 to 17 days. And so after that, they came out and they said that we give up. And according to that, you know, they were to be beheaded, but with the kindness showed by uh, the Holy Prophet, he said that you guys have three days to leave Medina. So then um, there was a companion, Ubaidah bin Samit, uh, he accompanied the groups, the group of Jews towards Syria. And after three or four days' journey, he returned, uh, stating that they have now left uh, to Syria or close to Syria, uh, according to current uh, days, uh, current time. And that's where they have moved. So that was their retribution in the sense that if you cannot live peacefully in Medina, now it has become uh, a threat for Muslims. So in order to exclude, to, to safeguard entire Medina, including Muslims and the other groups of Jews and uh, the Sabians, the, the idol worshippers, uh, they had to uh, kind of let them go and uh, exile them from Medina. Hmm. So this is how it kind of came to an end uh, from that aspect, uh, mm. just because of the wrongdoings on the part of the Jews to begin with. Right. So in in what other ways did the Holy Prophet show tolerance to non-Muslims in his lifetime? I mean, you have mentioned this. I mean, this is a great example of his mercy, right? I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. if, if he wanted mm-hmm. to, he could really have pushed to judge them according to their own laws, which, as you stated, would be uh, death punishment, but uh, rather mm-hmm. he asked them, you know, to 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 leave them in peace and just go out and and leave them. Um, so, mm-hmm. in what other ways was tolerance shown towards uh, non-Muslims uh, by the Prophet? Yes, um, you know, uh, for us, um, it is a very common saying that he was rahmatul He was the mercy for mankind, and he showed that. Uh, through his own example, uh, we see that this was not the very first time the Jews attacked, or it's not. It didn't. It's not like that. We as Muslims hate the Jews or anything. It's just this is how the history folded itself. You know, uh, this was not the first attempt. Second, in the second attempt, what happened? Uh, many people recall this uh, famous incident where a Jewish lady uh, placed poison in the meat and then that meat was given to the holy prophet sallam may peace and blessing of god be upon him and uh, one of his companions actually suffered from that poisoning and died a year after and uh, while the holy prophet ate that meat as well he wasn't infected but then somehow with the help of god with the medicines he he overcame uh, the uh, the effects of that poison and when the lady was, uh, you know, called upon, and uh, the Holy Prophet asked her, and it was a Jewish lady, and she said that, you know, uh, we were trying our best to get rid of you. So this was a way for me to find out whether in reality you're a true prophet of God. So if you were to be a true prophet, you would, have, you would survive this attack. 
you would survive the poisoning, and so you did. So I, I believe later on she kind of uh, she she converted a, a to Islam as well. But besides these incidences, there are other times. For example, in case of uh, Hinda, uh, the wife of Abu Sufyan, at the time of rebellion, at the time when they had not converted to Islam, you know she. Uh, attacked the Holy Prophet وسلم, uh, during the war of uh, Uhud, I believe, and uh, she actually commanded her slave, uh, Wahshi ibn al-Harb, to hunt down Hazrat Hamza, a companion of um, uh, the Holy Prophet وسلم, and kill him. And uh, um, so on the day of the victory of Mecca, you know, the Holy Prophet وسلم, he, he called all uh, the Meccans together, and he said, "La tasriba alaykum That today all of you have no blame on yourselves, and all of you are free, basically. So, despite having uh, been attacked uh, for your life, uh, despite facing so much persecution for ten to eleven years in his life during his uh, prophethood, he forgave all his enemies. Uh, and so um, this goes on to show that how the Holy Prophet actually showed tolerance to not only non-Muslims, uh, but also the Jews and the, the, the idol worshippers, the, the, um, the people who were uh, the residents of Mecca and Medina of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, nowadays there are certain limitations on Islamic practices. For example, mm-hmm. France and the Veil. Should Muslims in these situations put their religion before the law of land? Definitely, um, I would say that the religion um, comes first. But if we see the religion itself, the Holy Quran tells us something very important. In chapter 4, verse 60, God says that, O ye who believe, obey Allah and obey His Messenger and those who are in authority among you. And if you defer in anything among yourselves, refer it to Allah and His Messenger. If you are believers in Allah in the last days, that is best and most commendable in the end. So within Islam, we are very clear that we should not be rebellious to the authority of the governing body. Again, for us as Muslim, the law of God, the Sharia, and um, then the Holy Prophet comes first. But then they are telling us not to rebel against the authorities. At the same time, in one of the hadith of the sayings of the Holy Prophet, he mentioned that it is a duty upon a Muslim man to listen and obey to authorities, whether he likes it or not, unless they command sinful disobedience. If they command sinful disobedience, then there is no listening or obedience to them, in the sense that uh, he's not even even there. He's not telling the Muslims to rebel against the authorities. So again, you know, it, it's a very difficult situation where the Muslim mm-hmm. women actually have to go through um, this uh, persecution by the government in the sense that they cannot cover themselves up fully and use the hijab and all these things, uh, it's tough. And the Holy Prophet ﷺ showed it from his example that he lived for 11 to uh, 13 years within Mecca 
and he faced a lot of persecution. But he did it peacefully. He never um, rebelled against his own country. So, uh, but yet, if there is an option for migration for Muslims to go to another country to live their lives peacefully uh, with the religious uh, freedom, then they can do that. But again, um, we see a lot of double standards in the Western uh, societies as well. But as far as the Muslims are concerned, or as far as uh, their religion is concerned, it does not tell them to rebel back. Uh, it, it guides them to live in peace. And at the end of the day, God is aware of these uh, situations. And uh, God, uh, we believe in the ever-merciful God. So definitely um, leave it to Allah at the mm. end of the day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, now, obviously, looking at the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised Messiah, mm -hmm. uh, you know, peace be upon him, he lived under the British rule in India uh, yeah. where his Muslim values challenged or supported by, uh, you know, where his uh, Muslim values challenged or supported by the prevailing system of government at that time? Um, you know, <laughs> with this answer, I, I, I think you cannot make uh, the enemies of the uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, of the enemies of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, happy in any way, because to begin with, apparently our Muslim brothers actually paste this on us that Mirza Ghulam Ahmed was a British agent to begin with. So he was uh, mixed up with the government, on, and so therefore he never faced uh, such persecution from the government. The issue is that we see, even in the history uh, of religion, especially at the time of uh, Hazrat Isa, Jesus alayhi salam, that he came as the Messiah to the Jews. Even at that time, uh, we all know that how God placed it in the heart of uh, Pilate to support Jesus alayhi salam at that time. And so... Uh, the, the promised Messiah, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, uh, salam, also mentioned this in his books that God bestowed him with the blessing in the sense a protection that just as the first Messiah was protected by the Romans, similarly he is protected by the, the government, uh, the, the British government, and he compared the British government to the Romans of the time. So Again, um, but at the same time, he came to eradicate the wrong attributes that were attributed towards Jesus, mm. to him being son of God. And he openly con you know, said this in his uh, art, uh, articles, which were uh, printed in local newspapers, he even debated with the Christian missionaries. And he actually wrote a book called A Gift, the queen uh, preaching to her the message of islam and telling her to come to the message of one god and leave the concept of the trinity and jesus being son of god so in that case um promised messiah was actually blessed um as a as we believe it was a divine protection just like uh, jesus was protected in his time by the local authorities so he feels 
he he had that protection, but at the same time, he was persecuted through uh, animosity, through um, uh, you know he would receive tons of mails filled with abusive language towards him, to his, towards his family, uh, towards his children, towards his own personnel. So, but still, um, with the help of God, he was able to. Uh, promote the message of peaceful Islam and um, was able to let the entire world know that he is the Messiah of this day and age. Jazakallah Imam Ahmed Salman for uh, you know explaining this beautifully from so many angles so it's great uh, that we were able to uh, have your time. Uh, thank you so much for joining uh, Jazakallah. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on. A pleasure. Jazakallah for having me. All right. Take care. Jazakallah. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum. So there you have it. The whole, you know, the history and uh, all, all that going back to even Prophet Jesus and how things were at that time as well. Um, the thing is that the media plays plays a huge role um, in, in, in painting the picture. I mean, Big problem remains. Obviously, we know that uh, there some some so-called Muslims who claim to be Muslims, but they have done bad things. Uh, um, of course, uh, like with everything, you know, you, you, there are people who might be calling themselves Christians, but they have done you know terrible things. Uh, uh, similarly, you know, religion in itself is something that should bring you closer to God. But when people misuse religion, it uh, paints a whole different picture, and you know. People often associate the religion with the actions rather than, you know, the person who are, who is doing that. He's the one uh, or they are the ones to to blame for these things. And often in media, we see that religion becomes very prominent, especially with Islam. When if if there is anybody who's who calls themselves Muslims or are associated with, with Islam, that will often be highlighted in the media when something negative is coming up. Right. I mean, um, this is something that we have seen, which has obviously inc- made Islamophobia increase as well. Um, so so that's uh, something that paints a wrong picture in the minds of people. So when people watch the telly, uh, they watch the TV, read the newspaper, are on the social media, and if you constantly are, you know, um, given that information of something bad or negative happening and is the Muslim or Islam is in there, then... Obviously, subconsciously, it's going to be feeding your brain that there is some sort of connection between this religion and bad things happening. So, of course, that is uh, something that we want a change in. That uh, you know, the the religion of uh, should not be um, you know blamed for the actions of a few. The renowned uh, journalist and writer Peter Oborn has made a similar observation about the term British values. Uh, an innocent-sounding term, British values, has been deployed in the government's definition of extremism as an officially sanctioned attack phrase against those who deviate from approved conduct and language to classify or demonize Muslims. Um, 0208687 is the number to call. We'd love to hear from you on this. But let's talk to Peter, who is uh, joining us uh, um, on the line. Um, he's also author of The Fate of Abraham, Why the West is Wrong About Islam. Good afternoon. Peace be upon you, Peter. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, 
Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum Thank you so much. Um, so we have been talking about how, um, you know, certain language has been used to stigmatize Islam since the 1600s. Um, could you perhaps explain how the term radical or and moderate are, are doing the same thing now? Um, is it... Uh, is it that important, the use of these words? Oh, very much so. And, um, yeah, as I said in the book, I mean, for, you know, you go back to the Crusades and the language of Pope Urban II to see how Muslims have um, been demonized in the West. But what I'm... We, we have a contemporary uh, modern-day version of this in the language of the, um, the War on Terror as it's so-called, uh, with the construction of a, of a language uh, which uh, stigmatizes and classifies Muslims. Um, uh, and the, there are certain uh, key words here, um, and we very much saw them in the recent uh, Shawcross report into the prevent strategy. Um, and these are words which have really got to be used with great care. They're mainly neologisms, 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 namely that they've just been invented. Um, and but not not in each case. So one of the, the one of them is extremism uh, or extremist, um, and this is a scare word. It's always been used uh, against people who um, upset the established order. They were the suffragettes when they were agitating for women's rights before World War One. They were denounced in the House of Commons as extremists. That term is now used, which is really means heretic, uh, people we don't like. It's now being used all the time. Uh, it's unscientific. It's quite impossible to define it, apart from the fact it doesn't conform to accepted uh, sort of norms. Um, another one is Islamist. It's a very dangerous usage. And, you, and in the recent uh, Shawcross report, you saw it being very badly misused mm. because uh, it, it was used to define mod, um, sort of mod, uh, trends within political Islam, like Ennahda or the Muslim Brotherhood, which are, uh, are nonviolent, alongside ISIS uh, or Al Qaeda, which uh, you know which celebrate violence. Mm. Uh, and that's, this is a show, the, but it was a deliberate attempt, quite clearly. I mean, the, the people who wrote the Shawcross report aren't stupid deliberate attempt uh, to um, to conflate the two and noxious actually in its intention and its operation because lots of people take take your cross seriously yeah. and you get the um, term radicalization mm. which is ba based on what looks like sort of some spurious scientific piece of um, argument uh, but people uh, by embracing Islam are going on are entering on a route of so-called radicalization, which takes them from the blessed state of being moderate to the um, demonic state of being extremist. Now, this is, again, scientific mumbo-jumbo, but unfortunately, this piece of ideology, and that's all it is, it lies at the heart of the uh, current government's analysis on these, on these subjects. Hmm. The, the, the term that you use, Islamist, is, that one really baffles me because... When I, when I read that, I, I keep thinking to myself, what is meant by that, you know? Islamist, okay, is that somebody who, who follows Islam or somebody who, um, 
who who claims to follow Islam and does something wrong. It, it is really very very strange, uh, you know, thing to use, and you often see that in the media. It's, it's so easily used and so commonly used. It's commonly used because people think it's a respectable term, mm. um, and it's used throughout the right at the start of the Shawcross report. It's one of the ways you can tell this is not a, a, a sensible document. In fact, um, you know, Associated Press, if you look at the... I'm a journalist. If you look at the style guide of Associated Press, it's very clear that, that it warns against the use uh, of Islamists because it embraces so many different ideas. I mean, every, um, you know, every Christian is a Christianist. Every Muslim is a... <laughs> every who, who follows Islam is an Islamist. And, uh, you know, Buzz, you know Buzz, Buzzists are Buddhists. You know, and, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 and it's a recently invented term, and it's a scare term, really. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, um, it's great. Uh, and actually, the, look at the definitions of the International Crisis Group, which addresses this matter. It's really sensible on the issue. Unfortunately, the people who are constructing British government policy at the moment uh, strike me as being ideologues uh, driven by a particular. Um, distorted ideology about how to present Islam and about religion itself, actually, mm. not the subject. Right. Um, we now wanted to move towards another issue which, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, many people might be, you know, confused upon. I mean, certainly when, when, when I first learned about the PREVENT program, I, I thought this is something to, to, to prevent uh, extremism or prevent uh, you know, um, terrorism in our country and in our communities. But you've argued that the PREVENT program scars the childhoods of minority groups. Uh, why do you think that, and what's the arguments for that? Yes. Now, the first thing to say is that the priority of every uh, every government of any country is to protect the security of its citizens. And if there is a, a threat to the lives or livelihoods uh, of, of, of their citizens, it is absolutely right that the state uh, should, um, or should defend citizens. The PREVENT program, I think, is, is grossly misunderstood because the first thing to say about it is it's got nothing to do with illegal activity. Nobody who gets put on, well, in several certain cases which, uh, which, which aren't relevant here, nobody who gets put on the prevent program has done anything wrong. All they've done is said something, uh, probably, or, uh, or maybe done something, which makes them become an object of suspicion. Uh, and one of the reasons why I think this is so dangerous is so often it's children who, uh, the government is quite cagey about releasing it, but it's, it, it's very much focused about among young people in their sort of um, 15, much younger. Un under cases. 16, actually. Yeah. Hmm. And um, then we get, then I get uh, put on the Prevent program. Uh, often, you know, it's a long, you might be amazed, it's, a, it's about half a century since I was that sort of age. But as a young person, I was very passionate politically about many things. Now, if you're a young Muslim who says something, passionate about Palestinian rights in a classroom. I, I, it, certainly, it, it has been the case that teachers feel an obligation to report you. And now, for me, 
as a British citizen who believes that we have freedom of speech in this country, to be put, made an object of suspicion uh, for, um, for, for, getting it, for making a political statement of that nature is it, it, very troubling. And um, it's against everything which uh, being British stands for. All right. And um, obviously, Amnesty International have greatly criticized uh, findings of the independent review of Prevent claiming it is riddled with biased thinking, errors and plain anti-Muslim prejudice. What are your views on this? Is it, is it that bad? I mean, are we talking about government level of uh, dealing with things? Well, I haven't read what uh, Amnesty, I must do actually, but mm. I haven't read what Amnesty have said. Have said. Uh, but it is the case that the government, um, Suella Braverman, who, by the way, gives no confidence to anybody who values uh, decency, fairness, um, and um, and a public and the sort of values which British people would uh, would would accept as decent. I mean, those that, that use of the term invasion, the deeply inflammatory use of that, um, the way in which she has responded to the Nosley episode tells you that this is somebody who is not on the side of fairness and decency. She's accepted. Uh, it makes me angry this, as a as somebody who knows what it means to be British. We stand up in this country for the underdog. We stand up for fairness, but not, not Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, clearly doesn't. She rejects those values. Uh, but she's accepted the, um, I think, every single one of the recommendations uh, of the Shawcross report. Hmm. All right. Um, moving on from from that, uh, I think the the center of our discussion today has been um, obviously British values um, and and are they odds with uh, Islam, for example? I mean, when defining what it means to be British or British values are often you know how they refer to. How far would you agree that they define our national identity? That say, for example, what uh, Winston Churchill would would recognize. Well, the government has uh, produced a, a definition of what they call fundamental uh, British values. Um, and I think it means standing up for tolerance, free speech. Um, and, and the first thing to say about that, those are deep values of any decent society. The second thing is clear that the British government, the uh, Sunak government, has no intention of adhering to them at all. Mm-hmm. And it defines extremism as being against British values. They are themselves, by their own um, definition, extremists. But I think the important, the biggest point I want to make here is that um, British values are generous values. British values stand up for minorities. The British are kindly people. We're on the side of the underdog. Uh, and on that basis, and also we give scope, and actually Gordon Brown, who was a fine prime minister of Britain uh, 15 years ago, made a wonderful speech about this, you know, that you can be gay and British, you can be black and British, you can be Welsh and British, English and British, um, Jewish and British. It, it, it gives you Muslim and British. Whatever, it, 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 you have multiple identities 
within the idea of being British. And actually what this, and there is no sort of, to quote uh, a great English monarch actually, but I, I'm going to include her as British for this purpose, Queen Elizabeth I. There is no such thing as windows in men's souls. You can have religious beliefs. Um, it's become a topical subject recently, um, which are against the mainstream, and that's absolutely cool. Mm. And in that framework, British Muslims, uh, you know, m m a, a complete, uh, fit perfectly. In fact, that would be the, the really interesting thing, of course, is that polling shows that I think of all the various minorities in religious and otherwise in this country, hmm. uh, Muslims feel most British. Right, Peter. Uh, can I can I just uh, keep you on hold for a couple of more minutes? Sure. We're just coming yeah. up to the news, if you don't mind. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Because I do have another question for you, um, and it's been really, really interesting talking to you. So thank you for that. I'm just going to keep you for for a couple of minutes more. Uh, we're coming up to the news. Uh, you're listening to Voice of Islam. This is the Drive Time Show. Um, you can give us a call. Uh, we'll continue with the topic in the next hour. But first, uh, we're going to listen to the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show here on Voice of Islam Radio Station. Uh, in the previous hour, we were looking at the topic of um, uh, British values and um, uh, Islam. Um, are they at odds? Um, this is kind of the discussion that we were having, and we were just speaking to Peter uh, Oborn, who is a very uh, well-known journalist and author of the Fate of Abraham book. And we still have uh, Peter with us. Peter, thank you very much for uh, staying with us. Um, in your book, The Fate of Abraham, uh, Why the West is Wrong About Islam, you pointed um, you, you point out that after the First World War, uh, Britain had become the greatest Muslim power in the world. That might surprise a lot of people, but how important was allowing Muslim values and customs to be practiced under the empire then? Um, <laughs> it's a very complicated subject. But generally speaking, the uh, idea which um, lay behind the uh, British Empire as it did in, um, say, the Ottoman Empire, was that uh, you could believe or do um, whatever you wanted uh, within, um, you know, keeping the peace. And so it was, the British Empire was very um, tolerant of um, uh, of all minority, uh, all religions, not just, uh, including, generally speaking, uh, Islam, um, and um, that that um, that rich inheritance, which was that was the way of you know Winston Churchill formed deep uh, friendships with leading Muslim figures, and actually there were fears among his friends that he might convert at one stage uh, to Islam. 
Uh, and that generous, capacious identity, which was part of the governing method, really, of the British Empire, didn't try to, like the French did in Algeria, to insist that everybody should be French. Hmm. Uh, and that kind of led to the most awful murders and killings, as you know, in North Africa, in the um, um, in repeatedly actually yeah. the whole series of, in the war in the you know when they, in, when they invaded the country yeah. in the first place in the War of Independence and subsequent wars in which the French were involved, the British as a whole mm. um, were were, uh, were tolerant. I think is the expression. Mm. Yeah, that was terrible, of course. Um, all right, uh, Peter, thank you so much for uh, joining us. It was great having you on, and we, we, we hopefully we can we can we can get you on, uh, speak to you more in the future as well. Um, I'd love to come on. Thank yeah, you. really appreciate your bye time. Bye. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. You can also tweet at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, we were talking about. Uh, uh, Islam and Muslim values, um, as well as you know, whether they um, contrast or conflict with uh, values, British values, or how do we define that? I, I mean, are we even using the right words? This is the discussion that we had uh, in the previous hour. We're going to move on now to a very different topic. Uh, we're going to talk about aging. Can aging be slowed down? What are the secrets to staying young? Is it possible to prevent aging? Is it pos- possible to slow it down? Um, there are so many things out there, new diets, uh, new skin care products to uh, the gym culture, um, you know, the, the, the fitness uh, encouragements to stay youthful. Um, uh, and then according to uh, neuroscientists, there are indeed ways to uh, slow down an aging body and brain. Um, and a very interesting study was published in Beijing that found that a combination of healthy behaviors could indeed slow down aging in the brain. Now, we're going to look at that more in detail, but let's first uh, go to our, uh, our, our first caller, uh, our first guest we have invited straight away. Uh, we have uh, Naomi uh, Watt, who is a respiratory nurse specialist from Asthma and Lung UK. This is an organization that funds uh, cutting-edge research and provides advice and support for the 12 million people who will get a lung condition during their lifetime. We also they also campaign for clean air and for better NHS uh, treatments uh, as well in this regard. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining. So um, we we are focusing on uh, you know the the uh, anti-aging lifestyle, um, and one of the factors is staying away from smoking. When it comes to lung diseases, obviously, uh, people know that smoking is a significant risk uh, that uh, contributes uh, to uh, poor lung health uh, as well as overall uh, life uh, as well. Um, how how can how how can people prevent uh, you know their uh, their lungs from you know inflicting damage and just generally as well? How bad is smoking for us? Well, it's important to remember that while not all lung conditions are caused by smoking, it is the leading cause of many conditions, including chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is also known as COPD, obstructive sleep apnea, and lung cancer. 
35% of all deaths for respiratory conditions can be attributed to smoking. Um, and if you have any lung condition at all, smoking is likely to make your symptoms worse. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously, I don't know if, if I can ask you that, but there's some trend uh, towards vaping. Is that any better or is, is there also harmful uh, aspects to that? Well, the evidence is clear that vaping is an effective way of giving up smoking and that vaping is less dangerous than tobacco. But e-cigarettes aren't risk-free either and we would never advocate those people who don't smoke already to start vaping. Okay. And what are the consequences of developing um, lung diseases on an individual's health and day-to-day life? So... Each year, 90,000 people die from smoking-related illnesses in the UK. And Mm -hmm. two-thirds of all long-term smokers will die prematurely from a smoking-related disease. People don't always know that after the age of 40, for every year that someone smokes, they lose three months of life expectancy. Breathlessness caused by lung disease um, related to smoking can be absolutely terrifying. Not being able to breathe can be um, affect, can affect your life through being unable to work, as well as affecting your social life and your relationships. Mm. It, is, it is quite serious, isn't it? I mean, what steps can be taken to prevent um, the development of lung diseases? Some people will have a genetic predisposition um, to developing lung disease. Um, But there are things that people can do, such as primarily avoiding smoking or quitting. Um, So if a person wants to give up smoking, there is loads of support available. um, And people can access that from their GPs, their pharmacists, or um, from their um, practice nurses. If people have a lung condition already, managing it will really help. So that means taking their medication as prescribed, including a preventer every a preventer inhaler every day if they have asthma and COPD. And this is really important because it builds up protection over time in people's airways. So that if they encounter something that triggers the inflammation of their airways, such as cold air or an allergic trigger, they're less likely to have an asthma attack. People with COPD, must have a yearly review and could also think about getting pulmonary rehab, which is an exercise program to strengthen their lungs and um, help them manage their condition better. People with COPD can also access smoking cessation support. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, you know, when it comes to ageing, when it comes to looking after your health, uh, from a lung health perspective, obviously we have had the COVID and that's affected a lot of people. Mm. It takes a long time to recover. Uh, how, how do you see that? I mean, is it too early to say how it will affect people in the long term? Um, is there any ways that people can improve their, you know, um, their, their lungs, uh, their, their ability to uh, breathe? Um, uh, in in a much better way, their their lungs to have more capacity, perhaps maybe through exercise. How is it that yeah. you know it's not something that you could control? Is it people had COVID and you know it's going to affect your lungs, uh, but you don't know how bad it is and for how long? That's absolutely right, and that's why um, not starting smoking 
and quitting smoking um, is really crucial to lung health. One in five people will have a lung condition in their lifetime, <laughs> and lung conditions are the third biggest killer in the UK. Another difficulty is that currently air quality laws in the UK don't really go far enough to stop people breathing in dirty air that's affecting their lung health. Mm. There's just not enough research into treatments for lung conditions with only 2% of public funding going towards lung health research. The government has cut services across the UK to help people quit smoking and we really feel that the government must address this to improve everyone's lung health. No one should struggle to breathe. Okay, brilliant. Uh, Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. It was great having you on. Thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. You can also tweet at uh, Voice of Islam UK if you wish to send in your comments. Uh, we're talking about aging. Can aging be slowed down? Um, I'm sure over thousands of years, uh, people have tried different things. Uh, yeah. You know, try to live forever, but that's not going to happen, right? I mean, everybody's going to die one day. But how can you slow down the aging, uh, not in a terms of, you know, your numbers that you're going to be 50, 60, 70, 80. You cannot work against the nature, but how can you, what can you do to look after your health that you feel younger, perhaps, even when you are, in fact, older? Uh, that's the discussion that we're having, 0208-687-7878. Um, Osama, have you ever thought about that? <laughs> no, <I laughs> how, think to, how to slow down aging? I think exercise... You look very young, so yeah. you shouldn't be too worried. I think exercise <laughs> is the main thing to do mm-hmm. uh, to prevent this. And um, I have with uh, me... Uh, some couple of facts with me. Okay, that's good. That's um, good. <laughs> what um, what do what do you have? Throw it out. There are ten facts which I have about ten uh, facts. Yeah. Okay, let's just take five for now. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I think regular exercising, uh, including um, cardio exercise and uh, st- strength training, can help maintain muscle mass. Mm-hmm. And um, eating a healthy and balanced diet can, that is rich in um, nutrition can help to reduce. Um, accum- um, accumulations of free radicals in in the body and improve overall health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Getting enough sleep and managing stress can help to reduce the negative efforts of aging on the body and mind. So this, um, I think, sleep is. Do you getting enough uh, sleep? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> More than needed, eh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, that's some good, uh, interesting uh, five facts. Um, Osama does have five more for you, so stay tuned for the rest of the show. You don't want to miss out these special five facts. Uh, so, in general, I think that's something that we have uh, just touched upon as well. It, it is very important to look after yourself, right, generally with yeah. everything. Um, researchers have found uh, that each each individual healthy behavior, you know, means that the brain also benefits. The the body and the brain both benefits, and obviously that slows down the aging. People with four to six healthy behaviors will almost ninety percent less likely to develop dementia or other mild cognitive uh, impairments in comparison to those who didn't adopt healthy behaviors. So these these are healthy behaviors, right? What, what you mentioned. So what exactly are these healthy behaviors and, and what are the secrets to staying young? 
Um, one, a healthy diet. Osama, you mentioned that. Secondly, yeah. regular exercise. Three, active social contact. Uh, four, cognitive activities such as reading and writing. Five, non-smoking. And six, uh, non-drinking in terms not drinking alcohol. Osama, if you look at these six facts of these six, uh, you know, healthy behaviors, how can you relate that to Islam? I think uh, regular exercise because um, if you look at the Holy Prophet's life, um, mm. we know that um, he used to ride horses and camels. Walk and a lot it, as well. Yeah. He used to run. So um, he also had a race with um, his wife, um, Aisha. And on one occasion, he won that, that race. And uh, on another occasion, uh, his wife won the race. And at the end, they said, um, the Holy Prophet, may peace be on him, he um, said that um, we are now even. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's it's a beautiful example. Yeah. I love that story, actually, yeah. that he uh, not only just uh, looking after your own health, but also looking after the health of your family is really important as well. Um, and then obviously the Prophet's uh, lifestyle was such that he, you know, we talked about healthy diet. He used to have very healthy diets, very minimal eating. He used to say, you know, you should eat one third um, of your uh, what your stomach can uh, have the capacity for. You should leave one third for water and you should leave one third for air. So you should never eat your uh, stomach full in terms of like completely, you know, uh, fill up your stomach. You should always leave some room. Um, and obviously they, they were so active at that time, um, traveling, uh, walking for miles, um, so generally, uh, uh, that's something that has changed a lot with the comfortable lifestyle we have in this day and age where you are, you know, either on the bus, you're in the car, or you're uh, sitting in your office, you, you have to move around. And that's just how our bodies are made, uh, that we are bound to have some physical uh, activity in order to keep our um, shape in order to keep ourselves uh, healthy. So Islam says, you know, eat and drink in moderation and eat healthy and eat uh, of the good things that Allah has created for you. Regular exercise, again, you know, our body is like a, a, a trust or something that God has given us to take care of. So we have to take care of it. Uh, and um, active social contact, uh, again, the impact of uh, relationships the impact of uh, communities, positive communities, relationships around you really help you stay motivated. So if somebody is living alone and have not having interaction with other human beings, um, that can lead to depression. That could lead to many issues. Uh, that can least lead to can lead to loss of motivation. And even you know people who are in deep depression, they they lose motivation to live. And then your body, you, you let go of everything and everything, you know, your brain, your physical body, everything gets affected by that. And then cognitive activity. Uh, again, Islam, you know, puts light on this. And, um, you know, such as if you read the read and study and constantly exercise your brain as well. Gain knowledge, gain knowledge, gain knowledge from the cradle to the grave. Islam says that when you are born from that time, you know, seek knowledge and seek knowledge all the way till till when you die. So constantly your mind will be refreshed. Constantly you will learn something new. And when you read the Holy Quran, you always learn something new. And spiritually as well, you're able to then improve that health as well, which is crucial for your 
for your soul. Then um, prayers again are very powerful and very uh, calming, especially to reduce the stress of every day um, where you are able to meditate and pray and, and remember Allah the Almighty, ask Him for guidance and to relieve you of your uh, worries and stresses and anxieties. Then non-smoking, um, it reminds me of a, a saying of the Holy Prophet of Islam that uh, whatever intoxicates you even a little bit, you know, um, a, a larger amount of it is also, uh, uh, no, the, the saying was that if something that intoxicates you in a, in a, in a larger quantity, smaller mm -hmm. quantity is also forbidden. Oh, I think yeah. something like that. I, I wish I had the correct, the, the correct uh, thing in front of me. But basically it talks about intoxications, that you should stay away from drugs, you should stay away from things that can make you uh, dependent on, on something, right? So that could be smoking, that could be other types of drugs, intoxication. So it's clearly mentioned that you should stay away from that. Um Number six, uh, never to drink alcohol. I think Islam makes it very easy. Uh, in Islam, you're not supposed to drink alcohol. You're not allowed to uh, drink alcohol. So that solves the solution right there. And we know that there are so many issues that are associated with alcohol. Now, um, we have uh, looked at this. I mean, this is a beautiful teaching that Islam gave 1,400 years ago. And now, you know, researchers, studies are coming out saying, okay, you know, this is bad for you. This is, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. Islam actually gave us that lifestyle 1,400 years ago. Only wish that people actually realize it and see it and try to understand it. So, Usama, let's move on to aging. What is aging? How do we define it? So aging is a result of molecular and cellular damage over time. Such damage leads to decreased physical and mental capabilities, as well as um, growing risks of disease. Aging can also mean other life transitions like weddings, graduations, having children, or retirement. A wonderful guidance um, from His Holiness, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He has advised that a major element of the aging process was one's mental attitude. If a person maintained a positive mindset and was young at heart, then it would have a positive effect on their general health and well-being. And um, uh, Next uh, we're going to talk about abstaining yeah. for alcohol and smoking, right? Yeah. So we have already heard from uh, Naomi about the risks of smoking and people don't smoke or drink significantly. Uh, they increase their, you know, lifespan. Uh, a study from Oxford University in 2022 last year found that alcohol directly accelerates aging by damaging DNA in, um, in, in, in telomeres. This damage then leads to diseases such as Alzheimer's, cancer or uh, coronary artery diseases. So again, we talked about the Holy Quran where it's clearly mentioned that, you know, you should avoid uh, alcohol, wine and uh, gambling, the game of chance. Uh, we find a reference to that um, in chapter 5, verse 91. And when we talk about smoking, not only does it age you internally, it also physically affects your looks as smoke breaks down uh, collagen, which actually is um, 
something that reduces uh, skin's uh, uh, you know uh, elasticity uh, you know it it breaks down that material which actually keeps your skin healthy so uh, that leads you to what is known as the smoker's face a face that is more aged sagging wrinkled and washed out and just looks more um, you know uh, devoid of, of of life so these are the you know bad effects of smoking and uh, this is why you know it it is really important to stay away from that to keep yourself healthy um now we're going to go to our next guest we have with us uh, dr susan mitchell who is head of policy as part of the policy and public affairs team at the uk's leading dementia research charity she has a responsibility for developing evidence-based policies to ensure people affected by dementia benefit from the progress in research, particularly around reducing dementia risks and diagnosis um, you know, of the disease that cause dementia. Dr. Susan, good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show here on Voice of Islam. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Great to be here with you. Thank you. Likewise. Um, dementia... Of course, is another uh, disease that um, people are suffering from. Alzheimer's research states that every day, almost 600 people in the UK develop dementia, and that is much more likely to affect people who are over the age of 65. So, how frequent and defining are diseases like dementia on the UK elderly population? Yeah, you're right. The impact of dementia is really huge in this country. We estimate in total. We're probably about 850,000 people in the UK who have dementia. And obviously, there is a much wider impact and burden for the, for the people that look after and care for people with dementia. So it has a huge impact on people in the UK. Um, what I would say is that dementia is an umbrella term for a range of diseases. Um, they have this common set of symptoms, which are broadly around problems with memory loss. You might have difficulties with decision making. You might see changes in language and sometimes um, people might have um, differences in how they navigate and move around. Um, and so within that, there are different diseases. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, but there are also things like vascular dementia, which can um, is more likely to happen perhaps if you've had a stroke. There's something called dementia with Lewy bodies, and there's a whole array of much rarer forms of dementia. And like people may have heard on the news that Bruce Willis last week was diagnosed with a form of dementia called frontotemporal dementia. Now, these different diseases are they're different because they're affecting different parts of your brain. We see slightly different symptoms and there are slightly different things going on. To get to your point about age, so most of the people who develop dementia are over 65, predominantly in their 70s and 80s. But there are a smaller group of people who are under 65 who develop what we call young onset dementia. That might be Alzheimer's, but it's sometimes some of the rarer groups. So, for example, Bruce Willis is in his late um, 60s. He developed frontotemporal dementia. And I just think it's really important to be really clear that the impact is, is huge. Mm -hmm. What, in your opinion, uh, contributes to the development of these diseases? It's a real mix of things. And for each of the diseases, it's slightly different. Um, if I talk mainly about things like Alzheimer's disease, which, as I said, is the most common form affecting about 70% of people who have dementia, it's a real mixture of age. As I said, generally, you're older when you develop it. There is a difference between the genders. We see more women than men developing um, dementia. Um, we're not quite sure what that's about. We do know that women, on average, live longer than men. 
However, we also think there might be differences around, you know, your gender, but also there might be differences around, for example, different exposure to hormones over your life. There's then also a mixture of genetics. And again, there's more to understand around this. We're beginning to identify some genes which seem to increase your risk of developing um, Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. There's a, a gene called ApoE4. Uh, and if you do have it, you can increase your, your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease a little bit higher. There's lots more to learn about genetics. So I think in the next you know, 10 to 20 years, we'll find out more about how that's impactful. And the final component are a range of kind of, we call them modifiable risk factors. These are things you can change. You obviously can't change your age and you can't change your gender. We, um, or your sex. We, um, obviously genetics at the moment is still, you're sort of, you, you are with your genetics for, for dementia. But risk factors are a range of health and lifestyle factors which we believe you can influence. So it's a combination of all of those which um, affects how and why you might develop these diseases. Then these diseases more generally are about changes in your brain. Often there are particular proteins that form which do damage to the brain cells. And when the brain cells are damaged, they can't then behave in the way they need to. If you see damage in the part of your brain that's responsible for memory, that's why we see people um, developing problems with their memory. If it's in another part of your brain, so if you have something like frontotemporal dementia, that is in a different part of your brain where things like language are really important. So the symptoms are related to where there is damage in the brain. Okay. Um, you stated in The Guardian that a um, healthy lifestyle can help to support memory and thinking skills as we age. Would you say that a healthy lifestyle could be a preventative cure to dementia? So I think, as I said, health and lifestyle factors have got huge potential. I probably wouldn't go as far as saying they're a cure for a couple mm -hmm. of reasons. First of all, from the best evidence, and I will stress the evidence is growing, and so this is about what we know now. What we might know in 10 years' time might be even stronger and greater. We think about 40% of dementia cases could be avoidable through um, 12 different risk factors. However, it's really important to stress this is kind of on a population level. We can't promise that an individual follows all of these risk factors. They will guarantee that they don't get dementia. So I think talking about a cure is, is too strong. We can reduce that risk. Um, and so what are these risk factors? Hopefully, hopefully the audience here are wondering. They are a mixture of things. So it's probably in three big groups. One of them is about looking after your heart. And as I think you've already been talking about, things like not smoking, not drinking, taking regular exercise, or even, you know, being physically active is really important. It's also, if you have things like raised blood pressure or you've got um, diabetes or at risk of having, developing diabetes, actually managing those and making sure you're taking the drugs and treatments that your healthcare professional offers you. Next up is the idea of staying sharp. This is about keeping your brain active throughout life and later life. Maybe, you know, learning a new skill, learning a language, um, doing crosswords, different things that keep your brain active in different ways. And then there's a really important thing around staying connected, we, we describe it as. So this is actually interacting. Having social interaction is really important. Um, also, um, we know that hearing loss seems to have an association with developing dementia. So if you do feel at whatever age you're not quite sure your hearing's right, there are free online hearing tests you can take, or you can go to your GP or to, you know, there are a range of hearing centres in a range of different kind of organisations on the high street. Get your hearing checked. You may have a problem which maybe needs something like a hearing aid. Use it. You will help to reduce your dementia risk. Um, so all of those together can make a huge difference to um, the health of our brain and also, therefore, um, our dementia risk. 
If you're interested to know more about this, Alzheimer's Research UK recently launched a Think Brain Health check-in tool. If you Google it, Think Brain Health check-in tool, you'll find it online. It's a really short series of questions which ask people about how they live their life, and then it gives you some information back about what you're doing well that will help support good brain health, but also some ideas about the little things, small steps you can take to make it even better. It's really there to empower people to understand how different aspects of their health and lifestyle might benefit their brain health. Okay, and then finally, in your opinion, what does the landscape of um, ageing look like for the UK? Is the prospect a positive one? I think it is a positive prospect on several levels. I think we're learning so much more about healthy ageing, and that goes really broadly from understanding what's happening with individual cells, what we might be able to do with that from a really biological perspective, through to actually understanding what matters in terms of your physical exercise choices, about what else you can do to maintain and, and, and boost your physical and mental health in, in an older age. And I think we're all seeing that old, you know, older age is happening later and actually there's so much more you can do with it. Um, I think particularly from the, from the perspective of Alzheimer's Research UK, the focus on good brain health is really crucial. And it, you know, the more that people understand and are empowered to look after their brain health, the more that benefits ageing generally. I think also just more generally on a research perspective, there is investment and on to understand more about what happens as we age that will give us more information and more opportunities for example in, in the dementia space we don't have any treatments available that can slow the progression of the diseases um but there are treatments in the pipeline that may soon be available that might radically change what happens and could offer so much hope and support to both people developing dementia but also their loved ones that look after them so for me i think the future for aging is really positive All right. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Susan, for joining us. Um, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 020-868-7878 is the number to call. Um, you can also tweet at Voice of Islam UK. We're talking about how to slow down aging, how to look after your health, uh, both mentally and physically, better so we can live healthier Uh, and better for, 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 for longer. I mean, as you cannot determine how long you will live, but you can try to do the best to look after yourself. Um, 0208-687-7878 is the number. You can tweet at uh, Voice of Islam UK. Um, on our Instagram, we're also asking, we, we were asking um, uh, a few tips as to like, what is important to to for us to do what is the best way to stay healthy um, um we have had uh, some responses uh, if you want to respond on that you can probably go and check on on our instagram page as well um 37 of um of you said uh, eating well health, um, healthy diet and 12 said exercise more uh, 21 uh, said uh, avoid intoxication And 30% uh, said uh, sleep well. So I think the most uh, votes or the most uh, of you think that eating well is, uh, you know, most important in terms of um, staying healthy. Yep. And it is kind of true as well. I mean, if you yep. control your diet and make sure that you don't put, you know, wrong stuff in your body, uh, eat good, healthy, balanced diet, then... Even if you are not able to exercise that much, then you can still control your health 
but again, exercise moving is also very important. Um, but yeah, keep your comments coming in. Uh, we'll love to hear from you. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Voice of Islam. This is The Drive Time Show. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Keeping good company. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always preferred to keep company with the virtuous. And if he observed any weakness in any of his companions, he admonished him gently and in private. Abu Musa Ashari, peace be upon him, relates. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, illustrated the benefit to be derived from good friends and virtuous companions. Abu Musa Ashari, peace be upon him, relates. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, illustrated the benefit to be derived from good friends and virtuous companions and the injury to be apprehended from evil friends and vicious companions by saying, A man who keeps company with virtuous people is like a person who carries about musk with him. If he partakes of it, he derives benefit from it. If he sells it, he makes a profit out of it. And if he merely keeps it, he enjoys its perfume. A man who keeps company with evil persons is like one who blows into a charcoal furnace. All that he can expect is that a spark may alight upon his clothes and set them on fire, or that the gas emitted by the charcoal may upset his brain. He used to say that a man's character takes on the colour of the company he keeps, and that therefore one should be careful to spend one's time in the company of the good. Bukhari and Muslim You're listening to Voice of Islam. Online, on mobile, and on DAB. Now one thing that stands out about Hazrat Usman anhu, and Hazur has spoken about this, he, he mentions his incidences of generosity and compassion and, and love for the brothers and sisters of, of Islam. Where the Muslims in Medina were again suffering from a famine and, and, and a drought, Hazrat Usman anhu, he, at this time he is returning from a business trip and he has so many different goods with him. And the, and the, and the merchants and the businessmen of, of Medina approach him at that time and they say to him, look, at this time, we can all get together. We can happily, easily boycott all of the residents of Medina. We can bump up the prices of our goods and we can make a huge profit because these people are desperate. They have no choice but to buy from us. Hazrat Usman, when he heard this, all of the goods that he had initially planned to sell to the people of Medina, he distributed them amongst all of the people, free of cost, without any recompense from anybody else. Now this was his generosity and his compassion for the people living there at that time. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. 
Welcome back to uh, the Drive Time Show here on Voice of Islam radio station. You're joined by myself, Safir, and Osama. Um, Osama, we have talked about um, um, healthy living and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the topic of uh, slowing down aging as we have looked at. There are, you know, certain health behaviors that we have to adopt to try to slow down um, our um aging in a, in a sense that you you look after your health obviously that you give yourself more chances to live a bit longer and healthier but again obviously you cannot determine whether you, when you're going to die and when you're going to you know how long you're going to live for it uh, comes down to but of course you know if you look after your health you increase your chances to to live longer um we talked about uh, cognitive activity, but we're going to look a little bit more about the diet and how yeah. central that is to um, maintaining a good health. So about diet, um, according to the study in the National Library of Medicine, the typical Western diet is low in fruits and vegetables and high in fat and sodium. Moreover, this diet consists of large portions, high calories and excess sugar. One of the biggest problems associated with um, this diet has been obesity, which is one of the top causes of death in first world countries worldwide. However, a Western diet is certainly um, notable for being an aging one. So what does the Islamic guide so what so what is the Islamic guidance to have? Um, to say about this is uh, one um, on the que- question of a large portions a man does not uh, fill any vessel worse than his stomach it is sufficient uh, for the son of Adam to eat enough to keep him alive but um, if um, he must do that then one third for his food one third for his drink and one-third for his heir. And on the importance of uh, a balanced diet, um, it is mentioned that, O ye ye man, eat of what is lawful and good in the earth, and follow not the footsteps of Satan. Surely he is to you an open enemy. Mm. So I think that's really important isn't it to looking after your health what the prophet said that don't fill your stomach rather you should leave some room for air and water and one third you can eat that way you will not feel obviously uh, uh, too full and um, you'll be able to move around you'll be able to breathe you'll be able to be comfortable and uh, you'll also make sure that you do not build up excessive fat um, and again, eating healthy and balanced diet is, is something that we know is a fact. And, uh, you know, Islam advocates for that 1,400 years ago. 0208-687-7878 is the number to call. You can also tweet at Voice of Islam UK if you have any tips of how to, um, you know, what, what kind of foods to have and how to have a healthy lifestyle. Then that's something that we'll love to hear from you. You can share your tips with us. Maybe other people uh, who are listening in may benefit from that. Uh, we're going to go to our next guest. We have uh, Dr. Uh, Niharika Dugal with us. Uh, uh, Dr. Niharika, uh, peace be upon you. Welcome to the Drive Time Show. How are you doing? 
Thank you for the invitation. I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining. So in your work investigating the impact or impact of exercise on uh, aging, you found that for those who um, exercise regularly, they did not have increased body fat or cholesterol. They had more muscle, more strength, and men had high testosterone levels um, in that respect. Um, so... What are the potential benefits of such findings? Does that mean that if you are exercising, you can kind of slow down aging? Yes, that's exactly what we were trying to look for. Uh, the reason for this study was we were very interested in seeing what is intrinsic aging, things that are unavoidable, and what is a result of this increased sedentary behavior as we get older. And what we found in our study was that these uh, cohort of very active older adults, they showed lower cholesterol. And it's well known that ele elevated cholesterol levels increases your risk for cardiovascular deaths. It can also increase risk for strokes and a number of other co uh, conditions, age-related conditions, such as your neurocognitive decline. So maintaining lower levels of cholesterol is definitely good for you. The other benefit is it's very commonly known as we get older, we start seeing a loss of both our muscle mass as well as our muscle function. And why this is really important is this is the one, this loss can result in weakness, it can reduce your mobility, and it has also been associated with an increased risk of falls and fractures in older adults. And again, it's well known that maintaining good levels of physical activity can prevent this loss of muscle mass and strength. And despite this being well known, the sedentary behavior is on a rise. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously, has that got anything to do with uh, with with a healthy diet as well? Because surely, exercising is is good, but you also need to then put into your body uh, food that is needed to recover, I guess, from 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 exercise, and then obviously give yourself good. Uh, nutrition, right? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So it, it all goes hand in hand. And what we saw in our study, we did collect information on the diet of these individuals as mm -hmm. well. And what we saw was it wasn't surprising that those individuals who were more physically active were also more conscious about their diet. So the key uh, advice there would be possibly to have a diet that is rich in uh, dietary fibers, lower saturated fats, it's mm. maintaining so our five veggies a day is absolutely crucial yeah well we have a little bit of shortage these days don't we <laughs> here in the uk so uh yeah uh okay that's good um healthy lifestyle obviously that goes with diet as well as exercise you're you're quite right dr uh niharika one thing which was very interesting uh that you found um that uh, the elderly cyclists had the same level of T-cells as younger people. What is T-cells, uh, if you can explain to our uh, listeners, and, and why why is this finding so significant? What, does, what difference does it make if you have more T-cells uh, uh, when you're young or older? Yeah, so um, just to break it down and keep it simple, our immune system is very complex. It comprises of a number of different cells. And the reason we have a number of different cells is they perform different functions. And your T cells, they're one of the most important ones that help fight viral infections. 
and what we showed in our study it's well so it, it all links in it's been well reported for years that uh, with increased obesity so increased cholesterol we can have it all go at deposit into our lymphoid organs where our immune system develops what we showed was that these physically active old radicals they showed reduced amount of cholesterol and this also linked with the amount of naive or new t cells that were coming out from this organ called thymus it's a small organ that sits on the top of your heart and the reason the t cells called the t cell is its development takes place in the thymus and not the bone marrow and why it's important to maintain this production is that as i said it can fight off infections and more importantly the new cells So the one of the key things to remember about T cells is that once they are formed they can survive for years so that's one advantage but we still need this pool of new T cells coming out because these are the ones that have never seen a pathogen before so they've never seen any sort of virus before and they help us fight new viral infections and a very good example for this is the covid-19 pandemic mm. where we saw that older adults were disproportionately affected and the one of the underlying reasons for this possibly is that they have less of these new t cells that can fight new infections being produced by the thymus right so i mean in, in terms of um, in terms of aging and in terms of uh, exercise as you mentioned you stated that it was your hope that the findings would uh, prevent people from accepting that the third age of man is something to be endured and there's nothing you can do about it you have to just suffer could you elaborate more on this uh, you know important point and does that mean there's a shift in society that um that that is possible with regards to our aging population can their aging can their time um you know after a certain age uh, be a much more positive experience for them absolutely so this is not only my personal belief but across all the aging researchers whether they are immunologists or working in any space the key motivation at the moment is not to ensure that we live longer we know we have seen this lifespan ex- extension but the problem is although we are living longer a lot of these about 7 to 11 years the last years of our life are spent in poor health and what our aim is that we want to bridge this gap between living longer but not healthier hmm. and the government is now recognizing this as well we had a house of lords report that was published in jan 2022 and what they have, uh, the aim of the government there is that by 2035 what they want to do is not get old adults in the uk living longer but add at least 5 years of good health to their life So the shift we would like to see is a shift towards a healthier society where living healthier especially the last few years where we start seeing um so from my point of view if we can boost our immune function we can reduce the risk of infections hospitalizations due to this infections we can possibly have bridge that gap between living longer and living healthier right and then finally i mean through your investigation and your research um have you found that you know modern technology advances in 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 nutrition 
sciences uh, can they help uh, in in making our health better uh, you know there are tons of supplements out there there are so many different uh, things that people do um, to to you know to 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 help themselves in terms of uh, nutrition and things like that what's your view on that uh, uh, yeah i i think it's it's a really confusing field out there at the moment because there are a lot of supplements or fads or facts out there it's not always backed by enough scientific evidence so i'm a bit cautious while giving advice uh, but the things that we definitely do know like i was talking earlier on about a healthy diet a balanced diet a diet which is uh, rich on fibers so these are all natural ways in which we can actually boost our immune system or overall health as well maintaining being physically active and our study looked at cyclists who were very extreme doing very high levels but even just reaching the recommendations so uh, for example the current recommendations by the chief medical officer are 150 minutes of physical activity mm-hmm. and we did a follow up study comparing those older adults who meet those guidelines versus those who don't and we still saw benefit there so even if we take little steps towards it i'm not telling everyone to go on their bikes for 700 kilometers a month straight away <laughs> but even 10000 steps a day it it does help and there's scientific evidence backing those claims Yeah. Yeah, no uh, that's exactly what I was uh, kind of uh, thinking about when I asked you that question because obviously when you have your smartphones you will smartwatches as well these days will tell you that your target is, you know, say 10,000 steps or 30 minutes of activity every day. So, uh yeah, I was just going to ask you around that. I mean, I know it's difficult for you to give a, a specific answer because that research obviously is obviously ongo- ongoing, but of course, I mean, if you put a target for yourself that look I'm going to exercise for 30 minutes uh, a day at least and i'm going to try to aim for 10000 steps then obviously that will go a long way to keep you moving right keep you uh, uh, active absolutely the other the other thing is that a lot of us now have sedentary a lot of sedentary lifestyle so we've seen a lot of links between for example how much time you spend sitting during a day or how much time you spend watching the telly and how poor your immune system can be the other advice we keep saying is that um, sitting is the new smoking so we need to stand up if possible so rather than spending 4 hours sitting try and take breaks stand walk around a little bit and even little things like that can help so we often tell our older adults that when you're watching tv in the evenings try and stand and watch tv or give yourself a break get up walk around a little mm absolutely All right uh thank you very much uh, Dr Niharika Dugal uh, who is an assistant professor at the Institute of uh, Inflammation and Aging at the University of Birmingham thank you so much for your time Thank you for having me the pleasure was mine 02086877878 is uh the number we're coming uh, towards the end of our program and uh, we've had a very good uh, discussion with Sama first hour we talked about um you know the uh bad image that uh, muslims get especially rhetoric that has been used and also how um, how media sometimes connects uh, religion and especially islam to anything that's negative in in the media uh, hence making it difficult for muslims to uh, to even you know live um, uh, peacefully um and comfortably uh, on the other side we talked about uh, aging and uh, keeping a healthy lifestyle uh in this hour 
Two yeah. two different topics, but equally important ones. Um, any any comments from you? Uh, last thing I wanted to mention yeah. was that um, the power of food is undeniable, mm. and we all know <clears throat> how people say that certain diets or food can help can have um, the power of healing. For example, and there is a, there is one short example, but um, Hazrat Abu Huraira states that he had heard once from the Prophet peace be uh, peace and blessings be upon him mm. that there is a cure for every disease in black seeds except death in seed or power from kolonji can reduce obesity aid digestion treat several digestive um, disorders reduce um, blood pressure and treat congestion kolonji oil has proved to be effective in reducing joint pain and inflammation very interesting. Um, so that's the saying of the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, you know, there's so much wisdom in everything that the Prophet have said. Uh, generally as well, looking after your health is very important. As always, we say when we talk about these subjects that you should always take professional advice. You should always talk to your GP and, um, you know, try to get as much information and advice you can from um, healthcare professionals in terms of your health but then again living healthy simply li simpler lifestyle um, and um, all of this these things that the health benefactors uh, healthy behaviors that we talked about reduces chances of you um, you know uh, destroying um, your body maybe destroying is a bit of strong words but yes of course like smoking alcohol in the long term it's going to damage your uh, your body uh, and, and similarly, mind as well. You got to look after your your mind. You have to make sure that you focus on the mind as well. And Islam gives a solution to all of these issues, both which are physical and mental as well. So if we do that, uh, in that sense, we are able to uh, look after our health in the best uh, possible way. And then, of course, you know, um, you can prevent dying uh, early. You can prevent, um, you know, increasing the chances of getting diseases. Then that will result in you dying early as well. But of course, you cannot uh, decide and you cannot uh, prevent death. That is just uh, a certainty that's going to happen. That's the laws of uh, God Almighty. But we have to look after our health uh, the best we can. Um, and as science continues to discover new things and give us new knowledge, it's always amazing to compare back to the knowledge that Islam has provided and find that we have the answers in the Islamic teachings uh, all along. So uh, we'll leave you with the uh, Islamic guidance of the Holy Prophet that a strong believer is better than a weak believer. And at the end, we'll also like to thank our producers for today's show, um, who are Nabila Shah and Barira Ahmed. And uh, lastly, uh, thanks, Jazakallah, to, for tuning in to Voice of Islam. And from myself, Safir and Osama, uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Uh, 